today on Against the Grain. It's a book that's informed and inspired a generation of activists and scholars, a book about the importance of the imagination to activism and social movements. I'm CS. You'll hear Robin Kelly talking about his seminal book, Freedom Dreams, The Black Radical Imagination, coming right up. And this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. My name is C.S. Song. Trying to envision the kind of society we want is an extremely difficult task, yet it is a matter of great urgency. Without new visions, we don't know what to build, only what to knock down. We not only end up confused, rudderless, and cynical, but we forget that making a revolution is not a series of clever maneuvers and tactics, but a process that can and must transform us. The map to a new world is in the imagination, rather than in the desolation that surrounds us. Those are excerpts from a book that created quite a stir in activist and academic circles when it came out 20 years ago. It's entitled Freedom Dreams, The Black Radical Imagination, and its author is one of the most dynamic intellectuals around. Robin Kelly is Distinguished Professor of U.S. History at UCLA. In Freedom Dreams, Robin insisted that imagination, poetry, and other ways of envisioning a better future for all folks, that these are essential to all social movement activism. Being on the left shouldn't be just about criticizing the present system. Robin Kelly desires a total transformation of social relationships, ways of interacting and working, ways of looking at leisure and community. Last week, Beacon Press issued a 20th anniversary edition of Freedom Dreams that includes a foreword by the poet Aja Monet. The book features a new introduction by Kelly, reflecting on how movements of the past 20 years have expanded his own vision of freedom to include mutual care, disability justice, abolition, and decolonization, and a new epilogue by the author exploring the visionary organizing of today's Freedom Dreamers. Today, we mark the release of the revised expanded edition of Freedom Dreams by presenting an interview with Robin Kelly shortly after that book first came out. I have revoiced my questions because on the recording, my audio was compromised. When Robin joined me by phone in 2003, I asked him to elaborate on the statement at the very outset of Freedom Dreams that the book is a kind of crossroads for him. Well, I've, I kind of grew up with the left um, from high school up to now. I'm now 41 years old. And so for the last 20 years, I've been involved in various communist and socialist movements and um, have taken a pretty, I wouldn't say strict Marxist position, but I've been very influenced by Marxism. And, you know, I've reached a point now where I've spent a lot of time studying uh, working class movements and seeing just how complex they are. And they don't follow ideas of class consciousness as I thought they, they ought to. Uh, and so I really had to rethink my own politics based on uh, the analysis I was coming up with in the studies of working class movements. So in some ways, this is not necessarily a, uh, a retreat from Marxism as much as it, it's a kind of revision of that perspective and the embrace of other kinds of perspectives, including surrealism and other ideas of freedom that don't necessarily come out of the Marxist position. And you do have this emphasis on dreams of freedom, on the imagination. How did you come to realize how important those kinds of elements, those non-material aspects of human life, how important they are to true activism, to powerful activism? Well, actually, the, the subjects I've been studying kind of taught me this. You know, they put it in my face, you know. I've written about Reconstruction, for example, and over and over again, uh, the most interesting thing about that moment after the Civil War wasn't the battles uh, over the ballot or the particular violence that they had to face against the Klan. It was people sitting around in church or in social organizations deciding, you know, what would democracy look like? You know, what democracy do they want to build? One, one where um, universal education is available for all, one where land is available for all. And for people to imagine this 
idea, um, they had to they had to begin with a kind of um, a blueprint and a blueprint in their mind before they could make it happen. Uh, civil rights movement, the same thing. You know, um, what what civil rights activists wanted was more than being able to sit next to white people or to, to get that hamburger at a, a, a diner or a, a drugstore. What they wanted was a complete transformation of the way race works in America, uh, which would change their own lives. And so, really, I learned from the subjects I've been writing about, and it, it shocked me that it took this long to figure it out. I mean, I, I was working in, in this capacity before, but I don't think it was as clear to me until maybe the last, really, five, six, seven years. You read about adopting a kind of Afrocentrism when you were in college. You looked toward Africa, as many black radicals did back then, as the true home, sometimes as a place of eventual return. Talk about the dreams of Exodus that you describe in your book. Sure, yeah, and those dreams of Exodus go way, way back to um, at least the 18th century. Uh, for, For me, coming up in college, um, ironically, I didn't come to it through the Bible. I came to it through black nationalist organizations and through reading um, books about ancient Egypt. Um, it, it occurred to me much later that what was so attractive about ancient Egypt and Nubia and all of Africa, actually, was not Africa in the present, but an African past that was very romantic and, and actually probably never existed. But what I've come to realize is that that romantic image of Africa, an Africa where uh, there's no want, there's no poverty, there's no oppression, um, the land is owned collectively, and we have big structures like pyramids and, and all this great, fantastic knowledge of the sciences and the arts, that that world is more about the world we imagine we want to create. And so the utopian image of Africa, which has been dismissed by the left, myself included, you know, uh, saying, oh, that's utopian, we don't want to deal with that, actually is telling us something else, telling us that that when you describe what the idealized Africa really looks like, it's essentially heaven. And what's heaven but socialist society? Interesting. And yet some people you read about had a sense that Africa required, Africa needed a certain amount of uplift of modernization and civilizing. Even some African-Americans who decided to return to Africa were of this opinion. How does that work or fit with this dream of utopia, say, in reference to an ancient Africa or even to an existing one? Yeah, sure. That's a really, really good point. I mean, uh, the Garvey movement, for example, had a kind of dual position. On the one hand, they did. They also felt that part of what African Americans and Caribbean American Caribbean people are doing is bringing civilization, bringing um, Christianity and uplifting the African continent so that it rises up with other civilizations. One of the tricky things about this utopian vision of ancient Africa is that nine out of ten times it's still based on a kind of, uh, I don't want to say European, but certainly a, a modern understanding of what quote-unquote civilization represents. So what gets uh, valorized are things like buildings, roads, uh, the sort of signifiers of of modern society, but pushed back in the past. And what doesn't get valorized oftentimes uh, is the knowledge of the flora and fauna of a society, you know, the knowledge of nature, uh, the way social relationships work together. And again, I don't want to fall back into the trap of romanticizing too much about the past, because, of, of course, we, we're witnessing a lot of things in Africa right now which have certain roots in the past, but also roots in, in colonialism. Uh, but nonetheless, one of the things that, that I think that chapter tries to do is talk about the tensions between uh, a kind of romantic utopian vision of Africa as a social society and Africa as a potentially transformed modern capitalist society. And you write that few scholars or activists today take proposals to leave the U.S. and return to some African homeland seriously. But in their taking such a dismissive stance on that issue, I would sense that you think something then is lacking in current movements toward progressive change. Yeah, I think so. I mean, one of the, the benefits of, of, um, of exodus, you know, of leaving a place, is the idea of a promised land. And we're, we're working so hard just to survive under this current regime. And, you know, it's, <laughs> times are really hard right now. Um, that, 
the idea of, of Exodus, there's no place for it. There's no space for it. Um, and Exodus doesn't necessarily mean leaving the country, but the idea of trying to produce something entirely different, um, you know, that's outside of the realm of the present regime, that's the thing that I think we have to recover. Now, you also reveal some other personal details of your life in this book. For two years in the mid-1980s, you were a rank-and-file member of the Communist Workers' Party. And this leads you to a consideration of how the Negro question, as it was called back then, was or was not taken up by leftist groups in the U.S. who were talking about class struggle and Marx and Mao and Lenin. To what extent did leftist groups in the U.S. in the 20th century, groups like the Communist Workers' Party, to what extent did they take seriously the question of racism and the importance of dealing with the problems and issues specific to African Americans? Yeah, that's a very good question. I mean, most people who have a kind of passing knowledge of that history dismiss the Communist Party altogether and say, well, you know, there was just another party um, exploiting black people, exploiting people of color, uh, and it had nothing to offer. But um, I kind of make the argument that uh, the Communist Party USA in particular was probably the first 20th century um, significant left-wing or Marxist-inspired movement to attempt to take up what was called then the Negro question. And that is, um, how do you uh, work towards the liberation of, of black people under racism and class oppression and do that in a way that also promotes the larger class struggle? How do you make those things connect? Um, and the Communist Party came up with this idea that uh, African Americans in the South uh, represent an independent nation that has a right to self-determination using kind of Leninist language and St Stalinist language for that matter. Um, and whether people agree with it or not, what I argue in the book is that uh, it was a very powerful alternative to the idea that uh, black people are simply um, workers on black skin and that the same analysis that applies for white workers applies to black workers. What they're saying is that African Americans have uh, a, an interesting, noble, challenging history uh, rooted in um, anti-racism, uh, rooted in you know back to Africa movements, and that history has to be acknowledged, and that um, the oppression of black people in the South was more than just class, it was race as well, and nationality as they defined it. Uh, when we jump up to the present, or at least to the 1970s and 80s, a lot of the left-wing organizations adopted that position, um, as problematic as it might be. Um, so, in the end, you know, I don't really argue for or against that position as much as reveal how it really helped mobilize African Americans, but also how the Communist Party didn't go far enough, because you have people like Paul Robeson and others who pushed for an even more radical position than what the party was promoting. In this chapter, you write that the white left's inability to understand, let alone answer, the so-called Negro question turned out to be its Achilles heel. The tragedy for America, perhaps, is that these committed revolutionaries, this is the white left, set out to save the Negro when they needed black folk to save them. In what sense, Robin? There's historical precedence for this. You know, um, Just to give you a couple of examples, one is to go back to the era of Reconstruction, which I think is the most important moment for democracy in American history. Uh, at the very moment when um, African-American activists, workers, ex-slaves, had a vision of democracy that was all-inclusive, that meant everyone across race and class lines would enjoy the fruits of education, enjoy the fruits of, of the vote, enjoy all these different things. White workers, unfortunately, not all of them, but many of them, ended up supporting their race over their class. And so when we get to the history of the left, um, in many cases, there was a general belief that uh, white workers really are naturally radical once they just sort of figure out uh, where their allegiances are. And they assume that white workers ultimately should be the ones leading uh, these revolutionary movements and didn't really pay attention to the broad, inclusive vision that black radicals and, uh, and other radicals, Lat uh, Latinos, Asian Americans, had that would incorporate both their race and, and gender issues, for that matter, as well as class issues. And so what ends up happening is that, once again, 
white working class racism becomes the Achilles heel. You know, the willingness on the part of, of white working people to miscalculate where their class interests lay. They, they end up um, oftentimes siding with their race or blaming people of color for taking their jobs and this sort of thing. And so to me, the problem with the left has always been what we could argue is like the white problem. That is the failure of the left to really take, to re like really educate white working people and really help them understand that look, anti-racism is in your benefit. It benefits not just black people. You're not doing them a favor, you're doing yourself a favor because it creates an inclusive, broad-based, unified, potentially unified working class that really could exercise some power. The civil rights movement in this country did promote a certain kind of inclusiveness, and you write that the most radical elements of the black freedom movement that to some extent came out of the civil rights movement, or existed alongside it, that these radical elements, which tended to look to the third world for models of liberation, are often ignored. What was the appeal of third world revolutions in places like Cuba and China to black Americans here? Yeah, yeah. It was a very exciting moment. Um, after World War II, you have uh, the emergence of, re-emergence, I say, of, of, a, of a very active, dynamic, domestic civil rights movement. Um, but the leadership can't help but pay attention to is things like you know, the Bandung meeting of non-aligned nations. Uh, in 1955 in Indonesia mm -hmm. in Indonesia exactly that that brought together all these newly independent or potentially independent nations coming under the yoke of, uh, of, of colonialism um, suddenly they had allies that were neither the federal government nor the Soviet Union um, the revolution in Cuba had that exercise that kind of hope you know the revolution in China was also a kind of non-aligned it was perceived initially as a non-aligned movement uh, where you suddenly have allies around the globe who were not just Europeans, but allies who were, you know, perceived as people of color and who also experienced colonialism in the same way that African Americans experienced a kind of internal colonialism. At least this, this was the argument at the time. And so it was a very, very exciting moment. And that's why it's not an accident that um, some of the leaders on the left and even the sort of center of the civil rights movement spent a lot of time traveling around the globe. People went to Cuba. They went to Ghana after 57 when they got its independence. Um, they went to South Africa eventually. Uh, they went to China and visited and were inspired uh, by these nations and their examples. That's Robin Kelly speaking with me after his book Freedom Dreams, The Black Radical Imagination was first published in 2002. Last week, Beacon Press released a special 20th anniversary edition of Freedom Dreams, recognizing the groundbreaking and influential nature of that book and its impact on what's now a generation of thinkers and activists. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm C.S. Song. We return now to the remainder of my 2003 interview with Robin Kelly, who was then joining the faculty of Columbia University. He is now Distinguished Professor and Gary B. Nash Endowed Chair in U.S. History at UCLA. One guy you bring up in your book who traveled quite a bit to Cuba, he sought asylum in Cuba, actually, successfully. Then he moved to China, and he was very into third world solidarity, is Robert Williams, who I guess could be called a black internationalist. Tell us about Robert Williams's specific take on the black struggle in the U.S. and how he used or was inspired by third world struggles abroad in his efforts to effect change here. Sure, yeah. I should also add that there's an excellent book on um, Robert Williams by Timothy Tyson, you know, which is, I think, the best study on him so far. Hmm. Um, Robert Williams is a very interesting character, a Marine, you know, fought for his country. Um, he was reading, when he lived in Detroit, he was reading the, the Communist Party's Daily Worker uh, and became very knowledgeable about left movements, radical movements, but he was also living, moved to North Carolina. And given his paramilitary background, uh, he decided that the best way to fight the Klan um, was through armed self-defense. And so as the president of the NAACP, he uh, you know, organized local black people 
to defend themselves with guns and for that reason was suspended from the NAACP. Uh, this is about 1957. In any case, without telling you his whole story, he was also very, very interested in third world liberation movements, particularly Cuba and China. And um, after the Cuban Revolution, I think he was the only person in North Carolina, and uh, I think it was Monroe, who had a Cuban flag in his backyard. Hmm. I mean, that's, that's something you don't see every, time, every day in North Carolina. <laughs> um, and so when he ended up being uh, accused, falsely accused of, of um, kidnapping, he ended up uh, fleeing the country and going to Cuba, seeking political asylum, had a radio show called Radio Free Dixie, which was broadcast to the United States and elsewhere, uh, that really pushed for um, third world solidarity with African Americans. And he made the argument, like many of his contemporaries, that African Americans are basically colonized people inside the belly of the beast. And the best way to fight that is through armed struggle, guerrilla warfare, uh, and through solidarity with other movements. He eventually went to China. Um, he wanted to go to Vietnam, went to China, spent many years there as a, um, a close uh, comrade of Mao Zedong. And he ended up trying to go to Tanzania, and that didn't work out. He came back to the United States in 1969, I believe. But for him, uh, you know, it was very important to make links between the African-American movement in the United States and, and third world movements all over the country. Let's turn to Mao's influence on African Americans. To what extent did Mao acknowledge, specifically acknowledge, the oppression of African Americans? As far as his gestures toward the the Black Freedom Movement, he made two very significant statements. Um, one in '63, around the time of the march in Washington, basically supporting the Black Freedom Movement, and he made another one, I believe, it was '68, um, very strong statement in support of, of black radical movements, but he was never really fully supportive of black nationalism, which is very interesting. He felt that, you know, class struggle was the way to go. Interracial class struggle was the best way to go. Uh, now, as far as Mao as an icon, you know, black radicals, a particular group of black radicals, basically saw him as uh, a major, major figure, major inspiration, because first of all, he led a movement largely of, of peasants and, and some urban workers, but largely of peasants, and was able to seize power of one of, of the largest nation on earth, you know. And that gave, you know, a certain kind of inspiration to African Americans as a minority group in the United States to say that, look, with the right strategies and tactics and the right solidarities, we can do this. We can actually win. Um, the other thing is that you have radicals who really were inspired by Marxism, but were just very critical of the Soviet Union. And what China represented was an alternative to that, you know. Uh, the amazing thing, though, is that when you look at China's history of foreign policy, particularly with regard to Africa and the Caribbean, but especially Africa, it wasn't so great. They often were on the wrong side of the battles, uh, supporting African liberation movements that were not necessarily very radical, some very reactionary and why? Because their dispute with the Soviet Union in some ways drove their foreign policy. And so what ends up happening is you get African-American radicals who are very enamored with China, um, often not very critical enough of it. You know, they read the, the Little Red Book. They read, you know, Mao on philosophy. Uh, they follow the Chinese Revolution. Uh, and they even follow the, the, the Cultural Revolution with very little criticism because, you know, for them, Mao Zedong and, and China is the only really large-scale third-world socialist alternative they know of. Now, from this focus on third-world dreaming, which is what you call dreaming with an eye toward being inspired by third-world revolutions, and before that, talking about the dreams of a homeland, dreams of people, say, in communist or left movements, you move on to several other topics that we won't be able to address but I do want to spend some time on surrealism. You write that surrealism as a movement offers a vision of freedom far deeper and more expansive than any of the other movements you describe in your book, Freedom Dreams. Maybe we can start with a definition that I think 
can in no way be simple because it's such a complex and variegated movement. But how would you define surrealism in a nutshell? Um, I guess the simplest way to think about it is that surrealism is an attempt to um, plunge the depth of the unconscious, to try to find within all of us a sense of imagination that is not necessarily shaped or driven entirely by the circumstances we're in. So in order to imagine ourselves out of where we are now, out of George Bush, out of this war in Iraq, you've got to like really go deep down, um, not to the right text, not to Engels or Marx or Kautsky, but to a way of imagining and envisioning a different world. And the way civilists talk about this, they talk about the abolition of, of imaginative slavery, you know, mm. where you take the, the chains that bind us and, and really kind of toss them off if that's possible. Um, the way to do that, you know, you know, you can't do it in isolation. And it's not like it's disconnected from social movements and social struggle. It's directly related. Um, and it's a combination of that engagement with social movements as well as um, engagement with other forms of creativity. Uh, poetry and art, you know, automatic writing, uh, anything that could draw out ideas that are kind of crushed within us all. And that's in some ways what surrealism is all about. It's not meant as some kind of replacement for radical movements, but really meant as a way to touch on issues that are not material issues. Issues like um, how do we love under the circumstances where we're in? How do we form relationships with other people, uh, other communities? How do we build community? I mean, community is not just about making sure there's a mayor's office and a city council and um, running water. It's all kinds of other things, like how we, people talk to each other. And that's why surrealists are so interested in the psyche. Like, how do you understand the psyche? And I don't really know everything. I, can't, I don't have answers to all these questions, but it's, I think, the way to go in terms of raising other kinds of questions that affect all of us, that go deeper than, than um, the body. Thelonious Monk and many other jazz and blues musicians in the Afro-diasporic culture, your contention is that these folks are surrealists. They come from that tradition and they promote a certain kind of imagination that is much more than some sort of music or art-based movement. Yeah, yeah, and and they in particular they come out of um, an improvisational tradition where you take your found objects and you reconstruct them in ways that could surprise, leave people in awe, excite, you know, generate you know enthusiasm, uh, make people sad, draw on emotions. I mean, this is what the great musicians really do. They know how to do that. They know how to speak a language that's not language from a text. And, you know, there's so many lessons we can learn from that, I think, political lessons, you know, that I'm trying to figure out myself. You also write about Aimé Césaire. He was a poet, playwright, activist, surrealist, born in 1913 in Martinique, which is an island in the Caribbean archipelago. His 1950 book, Discourse on Colonialism, which, by the way, came out in a new translation a few years ago from... NYU Press that Robin Kelly wrote an introduction to, you refer to that book, Discourse on Colonialism, as a poetics of anti-colonialism, not just a an analytical exposition of anti-colonialism and what needs to change in that regard. What message was Césaire trying to convey that smacks of and reminds you of surrealist themes? This is one of those books that I think should be required reading of everyone, much like Souls of Black Folk is now. You know, um, it's it's a beautiful book because he actually touches on issues of political economy uh, of colonialism, but he also goes one step beyond that and talks about the psychology of colonialism, how colonialism uh, actually decivilizes the civilizers. You know, how it really undermines um, and degrades. Uh, the life and thought of those who are the oppressors. And that's what, to me, is so shocking about the book. I mean, he goes deep into what a colonized, colonizer relationship actually looks like and feels like. And he, um, again, plumbs the depth of the unconscious by writing a very poetic uh, text that doesn't 
leave the material at all, um, but engages the material life of colonialism and uh, really uh, gets deep into the the psychic damage that is done to all parties and why um, the overthrow of colonialism at the time when he wrote this book in 1950 was mandatory not only for... Um, for those colonized people, but for the colonizers themselves. And what he envisioned was a new movement in which the colonized people would basically lead the rest of the world towards a larger, more expansive vision of democracy. We were talking before the program about feedback you've been getting from activists, and of course you're an activist yourself, about Freedom Dreams, what it's meant to them, because I've heard a lot of really positive responses to this book. It's creating quite a stir in progressive circles around the U.S. What are some of the key aspects of what people are telling you they could resonate with, that they liked or perhaps disagreed with? Sure. For the most part, I've, I've gotten positive responses, um, I could say 90%, uh, mostly from people who uh, say that they have been feeling this way, that is, that we need to develop a politics of imagination that goes beyond dealing with crises. I mean, that they've been feeling like we have to go this route, and they've tried to figure out how to articulate that. And for a lot of them, they began thinking about issues like, you know, spirituality. Uh, and, and I'm not, I'm in no way a big New Age person, you know, just, <laughs> mm-hmm. just so you know, that's not my, my politics at all. But they've been feeling like they've got to search for some other way to talk about life because, uh, you know, part of making revolution is making new lives, transforming the way we think and transforming the circumstances in which we can think and live and love. And so lots of people say they're moving in that direction. Uh, of course, I have my detractors who are essentially kind of old leftists or new leftists who I think are old now um, who say, well, you know, this is all fine and good. But the reality is that we have George Bush in office. We have, you know, Roe versus Wade about to be rolled back. We have war uh, around the world, imperialism, everything. And so, therefore, we don't have time for this kind of, you know, silliness. And I make the argument and, and make it strongly that it's not silliness at all. On the contrary, I mean, one of the best ways we can be effective and really build a broad movement is by thinking about what we're fighting for. And uh, I think history shows us that every single struggle we've ever been engaged in wasn't the product of misery or poverty or oppression, but a product of hope, you know, hope, this promise of creating a new world that's different from the one that we've inherited. And, and to me, if that's been the history, uh, we've, we, we've inherited that history, and we've got to build a politics around hope, otherwise we'll be doomed to be just putting out fires. Talk more about what happens to our activism and our thinking if we don't try to envision something better, if we don't resort to the imagination. Yeah, we're, we're really stuck. I mean, we're, <laughs> you know, it's, it's really sad. And I, and I actually don't think that any movement, uh, any significant movement has ever done that. You know, I mean, this is why we're sort of at uh, potentially high point, but also a low point in social movements. Um, every single movement we talk about has been built on hope, on the possibility of change, of revolution. Uh, people are afraid to use that word revolution anymore, you know, because uh, somehow they want to go back to some kind of status quo moment. But I can't think of a good moment. Clinton? You know, um, Jimmy Carter? Where, where is that moment? Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know when it was. So now's the time for us to say, okay, forget about that moment. Let's, let's envision something different, better than what we've ever imagined, and we can do it. You know, even if it means doing it at a local level, a small, very, you know, intimate level, and trying to do something at a national level. Uh, one of the, the most thrilling things that's happened this year was being involved in all these anti-war movements. When you got, you know, a quarter, almost a quarter of a million people in New York City alone demanding an end to this. And it wasn't just against the war. It was for something else. It was for peace. You know, I mean, a real worldwide peace, and that vision was there. It's just too bad that um, it, it, it seemed like it didn't make an impact because of the way the regime operates. But I think for those people there, it made a huge impact. That's Robin Kelly speaking with me shortly after the release of his book, Freedom Dreams, The Black Radical Imagination, 
which has just come out in a 20th anniversary edition from Beacon Press. Robin Kelly, spelled K-E-L-L-E-Y, is an historian and distinguished professor at UCLA. You are listening to Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. My name is C.S. Song. You heard Robin talking briefly about M.A. Césaire. Well, in 2011, I had Robin back on Against the Grain to talk specifically about Césaire's ideas and impact. In the time remaining, we present excerpts of that interview. Here's Robin Kelly speaking with me on November 21st, 2011, about the thinker, writer, politician, playwright, and poet, Aimé Césaire. Césaire, besides being one of the great 20th century poets in any culture civilization, uh, he's someone who both lived through and thought a lot about the relationship between colonialism, modernity, and race. He put all those things into play. And so here's someone who is a student in the 1930s, along with Leopold Senghor and Leon Damas, uh, invented negritude, negritude as a kind of refusal to accept modern racial hierarchy that subordinates you know, non-white people. It's not just about being black, though it's that too, a celebration of, um, of African heritage, a heritage that had been dismissed as primitive. So it's in the 1930s, when fascism is emerging, that negritude comes into being. And it is at the end of World War II, with ideas fomented during the war, where his discourse on colonialism really comes into fruition. This is important because part of what he represents is perhaps the clearest voice among a community of thinkers who try to make sense of the horrors of fascism and to put fascism, the rise of the Nazi regime, in the context of a longer trajectory of colonial domination. So, of course, with Césaire, his breakthrough, much like Du Bois' breakthrough, later Fanon's breakthrough, and Oliver Cox and others, is to say, look, as horrible as fascism was, as genocidal as it was, all those practices of violence and genocide had already been implemented in the colonies against the Arabs, against the Africans, against the so-called coolies, the South Asians, against the, the whole world outside of Europe. And what makes fascism so horrific to Europeans is the fact that those tools have been applied to other Europeans. And so that, in some ways, raises a number of questions about, again, the relationship between modernity, civilization, and violence and subjugation. You know, because in some ways, you think about what Césaire was trying to achieve. He wasn't simply trying to kind of turn... the um, overturn the kind of, you know, colonial discourse, but rather raise a question of the interdependence of colonial domination, the way it decivilizes the civilizer and, and the oppressed, the way that colonialism itself is inbred, deeply embedded in modernity, in the Enlightenment project. So he's saying, I don't want your Enlightenment. Let's, let's build a new one. Can you talk more about what Césaire thought was the impact on the colonizer of colonization and how that might compare with Franz Fanon's formulation in his classic Wretched of the Earth. This was published 11 years later in 1961. How did the two thinkers differ? How were their views similar on this issue of, you know, who was the real barbarian? I think that what Césaire was trying to to say when he says that colonialism decivilizes the civilizer, that um, the only way they can maintain the kind of domination, both psychological, physical, economic, social, is through a kind of violence that didn't border on barbarism, it was barbarism. And you cannot be barbaric whether you're using the, the most sophisticated tools of the state or just a bludgeon. You can't act in a barbaric way without becoming barbaric yourself. And so for him, it's like fascism was the chickens coming home to roost. It was almost inevitable that eventually that violence would be turned inward. Uh, of course, the question of what's inwards 
interesting because, you know, uh, the fact that Europe never constituted a whole. In fact, the wholeness of Europe as an identity is very much a product of that colonial relationship. You know, without the colonial relationship, you wouldn't even think about Europe as a place or Europeans as a people. Mm. Um, And I think that's interesting. With Fanon, who was, I understand, a a student of Césaire's in many ways, um, Fanon was also dealing with the question of violence, not so much as a kind of inherent barbarism, but violence as a kind of act of resistance that can free or even engage in the process of decolonization of, of the mind and psyche. You know, so here's Fanon, psychiatrist, uh, seeing colonial violence and the effect it has on dehumanizing the colonized. And of course, with Fanon, gender is very, very important. So with, um, in some ways, it is a, an assault on, on masculinity to be reduced to a kind of servile status under colonialism. So violence becomes this liberating force. It becomes a way of breaking the shackles and creating new people. Uh, And I think that's one difference. Also with Fanon, he seemed to be less concerned, and I could be wrong about this, with the kind of psyche of the colonized because his main thing was, look, what impact has colonialism had on these Algerian peasants? What, what does it mean to create a new man? And for him, for all the issues about revolutionary violence and colonial violence, Fanon was very optimistic. In fact, in some ways you could say he's much more optimistic than Césaire because for him, he sees the destruction of Europe I mean, just like Césaire said, Europe is indefensible, Fanon sees the anti-colonial movement as potentially the place where the heart of kind of world civilization, the future of the world, rests with the third world. That The third world is in some ways going to invent a new humanity, you know, a new human being. Um, of course, he had his pessimistic side as well because he also warned that one of the greatest threats to this new humanity, this new movement, is the petty bourgeoisie, is that um, kind of the class created by uh, colonial domination that saw itself as superior, but more importantly, that had invested itself in uh, European humanism, invested itself in the colonial order. Like like small merchants, artisans, that kind of exactly, thing. Exactly, and colonial officers, which, which is very important because colonial officers in the African context, the Francophone African context, almost all of them were Caribbean. And so they, the Caribbean became like a conveyor belt to bring black intellectuals and put them in colonial offices in Africa itself. And um, for Fanon, there was hope in particular individuals like Patrice Lumumba of the Congo and in some ways Kwame Nkrumah, but he didn't see, he didn't have a lot of um, hope for that kind of middle strata. And it was a dilemma that he died not being able to resolve. Surrealism. Well, we have to talk about surrealism if we're talking about Césaire, the, the poet, the critic, the essayist. And of course, you know, we could spend hours just talking about what surrealism is, right? And its different roots and manifestations in Europe and elsewhere. Um, but maybe we can just talk about Césaire's take on surrealism. Um, what did he do with existing notions of surrealism that you found interesting? What I found most interesting is the way that he recognized surrealism not as a radical break from the knowledge with which he was familiar, but rather a kind of a familiar connection to indigenous knowledge. And by indigenous knowledge, we can talk about um, what he grew up seeing and, and hearing in the Caribbean among, you know, even someone like, you know, people like sugarcane workers who had certain beliefs and notions of the spirit. What he uh, recognized in uh, non-Western emerging so-called third world cultures uh, where 
there's a kind of wholeness and poetry to life itself that, you know, the kind of split between the rational and the emotional uh, was no split at all, you know. And that part of what I think for Césaire surrealism was, was a, not suppression, but an overcoming of the rational, to open up the mind to the imagination to things that don't fall within the kind of Cartesian conception of the world. So with Césaire, he was a surrealist, but not so much an enthusiastic one. You know, he, he was more surrealist in practice, but for him, it's like, well, you know, it's what it is. It's a great story about how um, André Breton comes to Martinique and he wants to go to Haiti, you know. And so Césaire takes him to Haiti. And um, I guess Wilfred Olam, the great artist, was there too. But the main thing is that Breton uh, witnesses Baudin and other kinds of um, rituals that for him was just just too much, too outrageous, too free, and it actually um, disturbed him. And so, you know, people chided Breton saying, well, you know, you want surrealism. Uh, here is a massive excursion into the imagination, into the subconscious, uh, with trance, with a kind of different relationship to the body. All these things are happening. And they were happening long before surrealism was named, long before there was a surrealist manifesto. Uh, and it, in fact, in order to understand the essential quality of, in some ways, Caribbean or African political movements, you got to understand the kind of surrealist ca- character, you know. There's another side of surrealism as well, I think, uh, and that has to do with trying to understand the reality of colonial relationships, that there's something quite, you know, in a, on the dark side of surrealism, it's the, the side of the absurdity of daily life, where someone like Césaire can have a greater mastery of the French language than de Gaulle or any major French intellectual, and yet still be treated as somehow uncivilized, uh, as a second-class citizen, or even the idea that assimilation is this one-way street in which becoming French um, and dispensing with with everything you brought with you, which then is appropriated and resold to you, uh, that how surreal, is, how surreal is that, how absurd it is. And so these are the kinds of things he's juggling with. I, I never thought of Césaire, again, as an enthusiastic promoter of surrealism, despite the fact he may be one of the most important voices of modern surrealism. I want to return to Césaire's negritude, which its impulse, I believe, and I, I believe you wrote this a while ago, its impulse was to recover the history of Africa's accomplishments. That was a big part of negritude. To what extent did Césaire yearn for or call for a return to some kind of utopian African past? Césaire, unlike some of his, his compatriots like Senghor and others, wasn't interested at all in returning to a, a pre-colonial African past. In fact, um, for him, negritude was a kind of um, refusal to accept the racial discourse of colonialism and a recognition that, in fact... The march of civilization, as Adorno would put it, does not necessarily mean the rise from, like, barbarism to, like, sophistication, but more or less the march of society from the slingshot to the atom bomb. That, in fact, we we, we can't completely invest in what he sees as European humanism, but there's another humanism, and that's a humanism born not so much in a kind of ancient African past, not so much in the kings and the princes and, you know, the, I mean, as much as he kind of celebrates and identifies with that, his thing is in the struggle of what it means to become human in the context of a long, long march of civilization, of, of African civilizations, that we see the fruits of a possible way forward. You know, for him, negritude was a future of humanizing 
the globe with a different kind of humanity, different kind of humanism, um, but not one that is a return back. And so that's why when you think about the kind of atavistic character of black nationalism sometimes where people are trying to say, well, let's let's go back to polygamy. <laughs> let's go back to um, uh, even modes of African socialism, you know, whatever that means. Uh, that wasn't Cesare's bag at all. The voice of Robin D.G. Kelly, Distinguished Professor and Gary B. Nash Endowed Chair in U.S. History at UCLA. We've put a link on againsttothegrain.org both to his faculty page at UCLA and to the just-published 20th anniversary edition of Freedom Dreams, a revised and expanded edition that includes a new introduction by Robin, reflecting on how movements of the past 20 years have expanded his own vision of freedom to include mutual care, disability justice, abolition, and decolonization, a new epilogue by the author exploring the visionary organizing of today's freedom dreamers, and a foreword by the poet Aja Monet. And this is CS, suggesting the important thing is not to stop questioning, and we hope you'll join us next time. Against the Grain is produced by Sasha Lilly and C.S. Song. You can visit us online at againsttothegrain.org, where you'll find on-demand and downloadable audio, resources, and more. You can check us out on Facebook at Against the Grain Radio, and you can follow us on Twitter at Radio Against. <laughs>